first begin by asking God to open our hearts to receive his word. So in the book of Isaiah, it says this is whom God looks to, the one who trembles before his word. We come underneath God's word, asking it to speak to us, and we come as people who know we need to be changed. If, if you don't think you need to be changed, you might as well switch off for the next 25 minutes. But we come as people who know we need to be changed. And God's word is alive and it works within us. So let's pray. Father, we pray for the words that would be spoken explaining this passage to us this morning. And we pray that we would feel that these are words for us. That we wouldn't think that these are words for other people, but that they are words for us. That we would receive them ourselves humbly and that we would grow in confidence. For your name's sake, amen. <clears throat> Recently, I think it was January, I got a, a bunch of books. It was a bunch of books that you say, a bunch of books, and there was a little free book with it. It was called The Spiritual Health Check. And I must admit that I kept putting off doing the spiritual health check because I don't know about you, but if I was Tanya's mother going to the doctor, I always promise that I'm going to lose some weight before I go to the doctor. I like to try and get better before the doctor tells me that I'm sick. So I put off doing the spiritual health check. I wanted to get my act together. I was also a little bit skeptical about a book called The Spiritual Health Check. How do you check your spirituality? You know, I was a bit worried that I'd open up this book and it would have like questions along the line of how often do you pray every day? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus and so on? And sometimes those questions can actually make us feel a bit awkward. But also the truth of the matter is you can do all those things and not even have a relationship with Jesus. You can legalistically pray, you can legalistically come to church, you can go through the motions, and if this was like what I thought it was going to be like, you could probably do quite well without even knowing where you stand with Jesus. But when I started to look at this book, I was impressed because it got to the heart. This wasn't about actions that we go through, this is about our heart attitudes. And by the way, because I got it free, I'll leave it down here and you can take it if you want it and pass it on to someone else and ignore where I underline um, because that might tell you too much. But the questions it asked were like this. It said, are you growing in love for Jesus? Are you growing in love for Jesus? Are you looking forward to the day where you'll see Jesus face to face? I've been trying to do that more this week. You know, one of the things that's going to change you and me is to understand that we're loved by Jesus. And I've been trying to lie in bed at night picturing what it will be like when we die and we see Jesus face to face and all our doubts about his love for us will disappear. What will that be like? Are we looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face are we sacrificially and wholeheartedly loving his people? How we think about the people in this room is one of the clearest measures about whether we're doing well spiritually or not. And then are we thinking about the cross of Jesus? 
You know, as I look at this passage, one of the things that struck me most about it was that he's speaking to his followers. It's who he's talking to. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to people who say they follow Jesus, and he gives them warnings, including the warning of hell, the warning that they might not be right with him. And so this passage comes to us extremely seriously. This passage comes to us, and we've got to look at it and know that we're on the right side because our whole spiritual welfare depends on it. He's talking to people who assumed that they belonged to Jesus, and he's asking them questions that go right to the heart. And so it's really important. In fact, in chapter 4, he talked about the temporary followers of Jesus, people who weren't really born again. Maybe they prayed a prayer or a decision at a meeting. They could give you their testimony, but they'd stopped. The Holy Spirit wasn't dwelling within them. And so what we're doing with this passage is we're looking and we're asking ourselves, Lord, show me I belong to you and show me I belong to you because I am growing in you. And when I looked at this passage, the word that struck me more than anything else was apathy. As we look at this passage, we'll see that there's always a danger of apathy. And where there is apathy, there is no life. Where you've stopped growing, there's no evidence of life. The first thing that I want to say, and here are the three things that I picked up from this passage that show us that we love Jesus, that we really belong to him, is the first thing is that the people who love Jesus love his people. That doesn't mean we're going to find each other easy. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to find it easy to get on with each other, but the truth of the matter is your spiritual health is measured by your love for God's people. It's one of the clearest ways to know the Holy Spirit within you. And that's a challenge for all of us. One of the things that struck me when I began to look at this passage was the contrast between the verses that we have here and the verses that Elijah spoke about last week. You see, we have here the talk about uh, a severe warning for those who cause even the least of God's people to sin. But just jump one back for, for to verse 31. And look at this. I assure you that the person who gives a mere drink of water in my name because you're followers of mine will certainly be rewarded. And it struck me that I think that Martha's drawing a deliberate contrast. On one hand, he's saying even the smallest deed done for God's people, because they're God's people, something so simple as giving a glass of water, which is a reminder, of course, that being a Christian will be difficult because there will be times that you will be parched, but even the smallest deed done in Christ's name for Christ's people will receive a blessing because he loves his people and he loves people loving his people. And then you go from that 
gracious encouragement to that severe warning in the next verse, which seems to be a deliberate contrast, which is saying, this is how much I love my people, but this is also how much I love my people. If you leave, even the least, the weakest, the youngest Christian, or person who professes a Christian, to walk away and into sin, it would be better for you for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you to be drowned. Do you see there's a contrast? An encouragement that says God loves his people so much that the smallest thing you do for them will result in blessing. And God loves his people so much that if you lead them into sin, you can expect a severe punishment. And can you see as he talks to these disciples, he's really saying the evidence that you belong to my people is your love for my people. Your kindness towards my people. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit working within you. And I find this challenging. It it means that if we're struggling with bitterness towards God's people, if our attitude towards them is one of complaint or keeping them at a distance, if the love that we say we have towards each other is not evident, then we're not doing well spiritually. No matter how much time we play, no matter how well we know our Bible. In fact, if the love that we say we have for each other is not real to our hearts, then maybe we don't know Jesus, irrespective of what we say. You know we all complain about each other. We all do. And we have to stop. I felt in June, God saying to me that if you're not courageous enough to talk to someone to their face, don't talk behind their back. And then the second thing, people who love Jesus always want to change. I think this is one of the most dangerous things as we grow on as a Christian, that we stop wanting to change. I actually think, now, first of all, let me be very clear that if you say that you're without sin, the truth is not within you and you are deceiving yourself. So if you come to me this morning, you say, I've got it together. I'm a really strong Christian. I'm beginning to doubt. I think that the most healthy Christian is probably the one who doesn't think they're healthy because they're so conscious that they need to change. And the least healthy Christian is the person who sits there thinking that they've got it together because we always need to change. Look at how Jesus talks. He talks about the eye, the hand, and the foot. He's saying, take sin so seriously that you would be willing to lose the things that are most important to you in order to change. He's using hyperbole, which is a form of exaggerated speech, but I do think that he chooses these parts of our body very clearly. He's talking about where you go. 
what you see, what you do. Men, what do you see in your computers? Have you become apathetic? And, and the, the real risk in this passage is a person who shows that the Holy Spirit is not within them because they've given up trying to change. I think one of the most difficult things about preaching a passage like this is the risk that all the people who shouldn't be worried about the passage like this get worried, and all the people who should be worried about a passage like this don't worry. Because, the, the, you know, if the Holy Spirit is at work within you, He will be showing you where you need to change. And so the irony is that one of the signs of spiritual life is you're aware of your spiritual ill health. You're aware that you need to change. And one of the sure evidence that you're spiritually dead is that you think you've got it together. And so you, you try to listen or read a passage like this, and you're not in any way uncomfortable. It, it goes upside down, and that got me thinking about what, what I would love for us to be like as a group of Christians. Well, first of all, if we're people who know the reality of our sin, we will always be humble. You can't know the gospel and not be humbled by it. But you can't know the gospel and not be confident either. And, and don't get me wrong, this is an area where many sincere Christians struggle, but there's got to be a confidence so that we go and we go, Lord, I don't have it together, but the cross is sufficient for me. Your promises are real, and I hold them. And for example, Jesus says, I will never turn away anyone who comes to you, and I'm coming to you in desperation, and I'm holding that promise. And I'm confident because it's an absolute promise. And I'm confident because though I see no good within me, I see plenty good within you. And then the last thing that should show what we're like, is that you're never apathetic. Never apathetic. That's the real risk, that we think we've got it made, that we're not desperate to change. And then the final thing. And I always hate when the, the difficult verses are at the end of a passage, because this is the area where you're kind of beginning to switch off. And I'm asking you just for two minutes to understand this passage. Look what it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? There's a bit of a debate about it, but I think everyone means everyone. And I think what he's saying is that you will either be salted with fire in the final judgment if you're apathetic, if you don't think you need to grow, if you're not bothered by listening to the Holy Spirit challenging you to change, you will prove that you are just a temporary Christian. You've lost your flavor. You're no longer salty. I do believe that those who are genuinely Christians are held to the end. But I think that they show that they're genuine Christians because the Holy Spirit keeps us 
going to the end. And as we go on in the faith, struggling and seeking to change, we grow in assurance because he is holding me fast. And, and then I think that everyone includes also those who are Christians. And what he's saying is, look, that there will be the salting and the fire of judgment for those who are apathetic. But for those of you who long to change, well, one of the ways he will do it is through discipline, through difficulty, through fires that you have to pass through, and you will grow in them. And then just the very last verse, it really struck me. Live at peace with one another. Live at peace with one another. Can you see now how the beginning of the passage fits with the end of the passage? Live at peace with one another. The beginning of the passage says, I love my people so much that even a glass of cold water given in my name will not go without reward. And I love my people so much at the end of the passage that you must live at peace with each other. On Thursday night, I was at someone's house they gave me coffee. What I forgot to tell them is I shouldn't drink coffee after six o'clock. At one o'clock, I regretted not saying to them I shouldn't drink coffee at one o'clock or six o'clock. And God used it. Because God pointed deeply into my heart as I lay there unable to sleep. And he challenged me about the bitterness of my own hurt and the real need sorting. Are we all complain about each other? We shouldn't, but we do. And at times we hold bitterness towards each other. We shouldn't, but we do. But the Holy Spirit, ask him to point the light into your heart so that you would never be apathetic until we're living at peace with each other. Because he loves his people and he calls us to love each one too. And then just to conclude, someone gave me a, a lovely book, I won't say, it was a lovely book about Tim Keller, the, the preacher. And as I read that book, I, I got so much from it. And the great thing about Tim Keller is that he takes every passage and points to the person of Jesus. And I thought, how would, how would does this passage point us to who Jesus is and what he's like? Well, just think of it for a moment. Jesus tells us to take sin seriously. So seriously that we would metaphorically cut off our arm or our foot or our eye. How seriously did he take our sin? So seriously that he had nails driven through his feet and his wrists and not only lost one part of his body but saw the lifeblood drain out of him because he took our sin seriously in love. And how can we look at him suffering for our guilt and not be moved to see that sin to him is serious? He's dealt with it. We're forgiven. But he hated it so much he was willing to die for it. Is there anything too much to give to become more like him? 
and to live at peace with each other. And then he talks about this fire of suffering to remain salty. One of the verses I can't figure out is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, which says that God made Jesus perfect through what he suffered. Like he was perfect, but he learned obedience through suffering. If he needed to go through fires in order to grow, how much more we? And there are times when we're going through difficulties that God allows come into our life in order that we might grow and we feel bitter. I hadn't thought about this, but actually that's how I woke up this morning. I don't know why, but I felt bitter against God. I, I have nothing particularly wrong in my life to be bitter about him about. But for some reason, I just felt annoyed with him. I want life to be easier. But he grows us because he's committed to us. And he will change us, not by bringing us into a church where everything's always easy, or our people are easy. Those are the very things that cause us to grow. And there are parts of us who would rather be always on a holiday with the people we find easiest in the world. But you will not grow. He's committed to our growth. And then finally, be at peace with each other. How much did peace matter to Jesus? Enough to leave his father's side, to come into a world that was hostile towards him, to be spat at and blessed him with kings. So, is it costly to have real peace? Not the peace of a peacekeeper, but the peace of a peacemaker? Yeah, it's costly. But it's nothing compared to the cost that Jesus went through that we might be at peace with him. How do we change? Behold the beauty of the life and death and resurrection that's ultimately the only way to change. As you look at who Jesus is and what he is and you ask for the Holy Spirit to do a work within you and me, that is the only way we're going to change. And if you leave this sermon this morning thinking about anyone other than yourself needing to change, you've missed the whole point. It's not us. Jesus speaks individually to us and calls us to be at peace with him.